Hi, my name is Dr. Sarah Adams. I am a board-certified pediatrician, but I'm not your pediatrician. Feel free to use my podcast as helpful information, but in no way do I intend my podcast to replace the advice of your physician. Your physician knows you and is in the best position to provide medical advice. Hello, and welcome to Growing Up with Dr. Sarah. My guest today is Dr. Alex Nimzura who has a PhD in biomedical science, neuroscience, from Northeastern Ohio Medical University and Kent State University. In her job as a senior medical writer, she develops medical education materials and scientific publications for major pharmaceutical companies. Her medical writing experience is in the areas of rare diseases, lung cancer, neuropsychiatry, and ophthalmology. Alex is also a mother of two wonderful children, three-year-old daughter, Stella, and -and year-and-a-half-old son, Hudson. Hudson has a rare form of dwarfism called hypochondroplasia. When he was diagnosed, Alex discovered that there really wasn't a lot of information about hydrochondroplasia available for parents. She realized she was in a position to change that. She now uses her medical knowledge and communications experience to teach others about dwarfism and share her experience as a mother of a child with hypochondroplasia. She does this in both her professional as well as in her personal life. So thank you, Dr. Nimzura, for joining me. Is it okay if I call you Alex for the rest Absolutely. of the episode? <laughs> yes. Absolutely. And I'm really excited to have this, you know, open and honest conversation. Um, I'd like to give a little background. Alex also was on my 14th podcast, so welcome back. And <laughs> uh, we talked about hearing, which I think we yeah. need, you know, is such an important topic, obviously. But a lot has changed since you and I recorded that original podcast. And mm-hmm. I think one of the first things really to start is what exactly is hypochondroplasia? Yeah, so hypochondroplasia is a form of dwarfism. So actually, a lot of people don't realize that there's many different types of dwarfism, which means short stature. Um, you know, there's there's types like um, disproportionate dwarfism, which hypochondroplasia is an example of that. And that means that certain parts of the body are shorter, while other parts of the body are average size. Um, So basically, in hypochondroplasia, the head is a little bit larger than average, and um, the limbs, meaning the arms and the legs, are shorter. So this is short stature caused by short arms and legs. And in addition to those physical characteristics, what are some additional characteristics or uh, even complications that go along with that? Yeah, so there actually are some medical complications associated with hypochondroplasia, and some of them can be pretty serious and possibly Um, Mm life-threatening. One example is um, a narrowing of the the opening of the base of the skull, um, and this can cause a squeezing of the nerves, um, which can affect breathing and respiratory function. Um, another complication is, you know, general breathing problems that can be due to weak muscles um, that are used to breathe and a narrow airway, which is caused by the face being shaped differently um, and um, enlarged adenoids, which are 
glands that are at the back of your nose. So these can these three things can kind of work together to cause breathing challenges um, that you know can be more pronounced in some patients during sleep, um, which is called sleep apnea. Um, and that's when their breathing repeatedly stops and starts during sleep. Um, so another complication is bowed legs. Um, and this usually goes away on its own when the children start to walk. Um, but in some cases, it does require surgery. Um, another challenge is frequent ear infections and fluid in the ears. And actually, my son Hudson just had uh, ear tubes put in on um, Friday of last week. And oh, wow. Um, yeah. And um, he he has had constant ear infections, constant fluid in his ears. And this has actually affected his speech development and his, um, uh, you know, general demeanor. And um, another challenge is that their muscles just in general are not as strong and they are delayed with their motor skills. So okay. he's, you know, he was delayed to learn how to walk and, um, you know, keeping his head upright. A lot of kids with dwarfism, they can't, they don't have, since they have the larger head and their muscles of their neck aren't as strong, those in combination can cause their head to flop forward and that can affect their breathing. So, um, you know, keeping their head supported is, um, you know, another thing that's super important. Um, another thing that can be common in kids with hypochondroplasia is an outward curving of the upper spine. Um, oh. You might know of this as hunchback. Um, and this is something that in a lot of cases does go away on its own. Um, but, you know, you have to keep their back straight and supported for the first year of life to, to help prevent that from developing because it could cause serious medical complications down the road. Um, so yeah, those are some of the main medical challenges that are seen in hypochondroplasia. I would imagine too, with, you know, that head control, because, you know, we, when it comes to like, this is the time to feed a baby, you know, when we talk about, you know, do they have good control of their trunk and can they hold their head up? And so I would imagine too, that probably affected, you know, how you fed him, you know, and, and, and so on in regards to not in bottle feeding too, but also, you know, with supplemental foods. Absolutely. So, um, it's interesting that you bring that up. So we had to make some modifications when we fed him um, throughout mainly the first year of life. So basically, whenever we fed him, whether I was um, breast or bottle feeding, we had to support his back on one of those boppy pillows. And okay. we had to keep our hand behind his head at all times. So that would keep his back straight and his head and neck straight. Mm -hmm. while also supporting his head. Um, so basically, we... Oh, another thing that's common in kids with hypochondroplasia is reflux. Um, oh. And this is because their muscles aren't as strong. So the food can come up from their bellies to the, the um, through the esophagus, which is the tube that connects the stomach or the stomach to the mouth. Um, yeah. And um, it, this food coming back up is something that can then affect their breathing. 
and um, you know, it can be very uncomfortable as well. So we had to feed him in very small amounts. So basically, not only did we have to support his head and neck and his back, but we had to make sure that we weren't feeding him too much in, during a given feeding session. And another thing is that kids with hypochondroplasia, since they are not, they don't have as strong as muscles, they're more likely to aspirate their food. So basically this means that it can go into their lungs. So I was advised by Hudson's pediatricians to breastfeed for as long as possible, because if the breast milk were to get into his lungs, it wouldn't cause as much damage as the formula would. Um, so these are some things that we had to consider when we fed him. And, um, you know, it, it was definitely, you know, it just becomes part of your new routine. And it was definitely an adjustment at first, but we got used to it. And then once he switched to the high chair, he got a little older and stronger. We had to make sure that we got a high chair that had a supported back that was straight and that also inclined 45 degrees. Um, so this took a lot of searching through the internet and, you know, trying to find a high chair that could meet our needs. And we finally found one that, um, you know, was able to do this. And it, it was, you know, it supports his back while also keeping him, um, you know, supported and, and comfortable. So. And I imagine then less reflux, less aspiration, Exactly. That kind of thing, less frustration for him and you when you're trying to feed him. Totally. Yeah. Let's, let's go back a little bit and and I and tell me about kind of, you know, you're pregnant, having another baby and tell us the story about when they started to notice hmm, something is not exactly right yeah so it started it started during the uh, second trimester ultrasound so that was when his head was measuring very large and actually they they weren't able to get certain measurements and i don't think it was necessarily due to his hypochondroplasia but maybe more just how he was positioned inside of my belly Mm -hmm. and um they so they had me come back and at that point, you know, we were kind of laughing. We were like, oh, large heads, they run in the family. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's not unheard of. You know, babies sometimes just have big heads. And um, so I came back for a repeat ultrasound to try to find the measurements that we hadn't been able to get before. And that's when they said, you know, hey, his his um, femurs, which are the bones in the legs, you know, they they were measuring short and his mm-hmm. head was measuring large. So they had me come back for another scan, but this time it was with the maternal fetal medicine doctor or the high risk pregnancy specialist. And basically they did growth measuring and monitoring over a series of ultrasounds. So they had me come back every, I want to say it was like every two or three weeks from there to just get those measurements. And there was one ultrasound where his measurements of his legs And um, it was actually both of his long bones. So both his legs and his arms um, were measuring short and his head was also measuring very large. But in the um, size of the legs and arms, they actually fell off of the growth curve at that point. Okay. Okay. So they went from being on the smaller end of quote unquote normal to being, you know, very much like 
flagged as this, this is not typically seen in um, children or in, in babies. Um, so that's when they left it up to me. They said, you know, you can do genetic testing. It will be a procedure that you'll go to the hospital for, but it's outpatient. And, you know, they'll stick a big needle in your belly. It's called amniocentesis. And, you know, I was, I was very pregnant at that time. So the thought of putting a big needle in my big pregnant belly was honestly terrifying to me. I, it just gave me the heebie-jeebies. I didn't like the thought of it, Yeah, um, but I'm someone who likes to have answers. Sure. And I remember thinking, you know, if this knowledge could possibly help change how we handle the delivery, you know, if there's certain things we need to consider with who delivers my baby or where do we need to go to have this done? You know, do we need to be in a place with a special NICU that is prepared for taking care of this condition, you know, I wanted to know ahead of time. So I decided that for me and my family, doing the genetic testing was the best decision. So I decided to go ahead with it. And um, that's when um, I will also say that at that time, I didn't really think it was dwarfism. I kind of was reassured by, you know, the doctors and nurses who, who told us, they said, you know what, you and your husband, you are very petite people. And as you mentioned, large heads run in your family. So this is probably just due to that. And you also have to keep in mind that dwarfism is very, very rare. Rare. So, you know. What, and I, and I don't want to interrupt you, but I have to ask, like, at what point during all those ultrasounds, and then they're talking about amniocentesis, did you start to, you know, what was your thought process going through that? Because I'm sure there's a lot of either women out there who are pregnant now that are kind of going through the same thing, you know, hey, there's something going on, we're not sure, you know, but we we want to keep following it. And they're probably like, either totally freaking out, or they're, you know, like, what what was going through your mind and, and uh, your husband and family? Yeah, so I will be honest, this is actually pretty uncharacteristic of me, but I wasn't worried. I mm -hmm. thought, you know what, this is probably fine. And it's probably just because I'm a petite person. And, you know, it's, it's probably just that. And this yeah. would be so, so rare for it to be dwarfism that, you know, I, I really wasn't worried until his measurements fell off the growth curve. Okay, that was okay. kind of the moment where I realized, you know what, I should probably get this checked into. So sure, um, sure. at that point, I still felt like, you know, I'm just doing this as a precaution, just to, yeah. just to get the test to, to make sure it's not that. Um, but I didn't think that it was actually going to be that. So, so I was honestly, I was kind of chilling. I was, and not there's nothing wrong at that point. Yeah, there's yeah. nothing wrong with that because worrying isn't going to change anything, right? And, exactly. And what I love about your decision whether or not to do the amniocentesis is, you know, whenever we're, you know, presented with like, you could do this test or that test, you have to say in your mind, what, how, what am I going to do with this information? So, right. and some of it, sometimes it's just because I want 
to have that knowledge. But it, like you said, it's preparation, you know, mm-hmm. for and just knowing, is there something we need to prepare for mentally and physically? Right. So, OK, right. so so now they're saying, OK, we need to do this amniocentesis in it. What um, stage of the pregnancy are you at this point? Oh, gosh, I think I was about 36 weeks pregnant. Oh, so you're pretty far along. Yes, it, it yeah. was it was near the end. And you know what? I think I, I misspoke. It was maybe around like 34 weeks. But either way, it was Still. toward the end. It took about three weeks to get the results. Okay. Um, so, you know, I found out basically at the very end of the pregnancy. Um, but I'm glad I did. I'm glad I knew beforehand because it did affect the delivery decisions. I okay. made sure that... I scheduled a, um, oh, okay. So that's another thing to consider. So Hudson, my son, he was breached. So he was upside down. Um, and basically they offered to me that we could do the procedure to try to flip him. And I said, well, you know what? Why would I do that? Because his head is very large. So even if we do that, there's a chance he might need a C-section anyway. So Mm -hmm. I just decided, you know what? I'm going to just schedule the C-section. I made sure that I scheduled it with a doctor who had experience um, with patients with dwarfism. Mm -hmm. Um, So that made me feel more comfortable. It put my mind at ease that he was prepared to, you know, take care of the situation and my child and me and keep us safe to the best of his ability. Um, You know, I made sure that I delivered at a hospital that did have the NICU so that he was, you know, in the right place if something were to go awry. Um, so it it did affect, you know, the way we handled the delivery. And it also, I think, was better for my emotional well-being because I knew what to expect going into the delivery mm-hmm. because I knew that, you know, that he was probably going to look different. And I knew to expect that. Um, and, you know, and I think that for me, and I know everyone is different, so everyone needs to just make the decision that's right for them. Um, but for me, I liked the fact that I didn't have to deal with receiving life-changing news after I had just given birth. Um, I think that for me would have been really traumatic, not that it wasn't traumatic anyway, but it, it just gave me, you know, the ability to cope and start to internalize my feelings while I wasn't also going through physical pain and these major hormonal shifts that happen right after you give birth. Um, And, you know, it also, you know, now conversely, I think that a challenge with doing it that way was that the diagnosis was all I knew about my son at that time. So I didn't have a face to put with it, a face to bond with, you know, it was, I only knew that he had dwarfism. So that was definitely, you know, not ideal. Um, But, you know, if I were to do it over, I think that the knowledge and preparation would outweigh the fact that that's all I knew about him. And I would make the decision again and do the amniocentesis to find out, you know, about the diagnosis beforehand. So when they did the amniocentesis, they did a genetic test and that's how you found out. And there's mm-hmm. no history in your family, correct? No. With, uh, with dwarfism. And that's actually 
common, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Yep. 80% of cases are de novo or spontaneous. Um, There's no family history. So it was definitely surprising for us. And, you know, I think that's how 80% of people probably feel when they get the diagnosis, you know, there's no family history. They're not expecting it. And I also, just in my preparation too, um, you know, the windows in the brain, uh, that help kind of manage the fluid that, you know, is surrounds our brain and our spinal cord. Sometimes those can be larger as well in children born with dwarfism. And of course, when you're told like my child has a big head, was that ever um, something that, you know, they, they mentioned and when it comes to that narrowing, you mentioned in the beginning um, when when do you check for something like that? Was that something yeah. you could check during ultrasounds or was it just like, well, we're going to see how he's doing once he's born? Yeah. So in Hudson's case, they checked it after he was born. And I'm glad you brought that up because um, increased pressure of, from increased fluids in the brain is something that is caused or that is um that occurs in dwarfism. Mm-hmm. So um, that's another medical challenge that's important to consider that could be life-threatening. Um, so they actually checked for that by doing a neurological exam. So they mm-hmm. checked, you know, his um, reflexes. They they checked um, all different things. I think it was a um, neurologist who, who did that or a um, pediatric neurosurgeon who did that test. Um, and then they ordered an MRI. So they actually did that test um, without any anesthesia or anything because he was a newborn. And um, I think he was one month old at that time. So he went right to sleep. So, you know, he they were able to do that just while he was taking a nap. So it was completely painless. And um, they did flag during that that he did have um, an increased size of one of the windows in the brain that does have fluid in it. Okay. But they did tell me not to be concerned about it because they Good. said they didn't think it was going to cause any problems for him. Um, so it didn't need any surgery or anything. Although in some children, it, it does require surgery, but right. Hudson right. did not need that. So, you know, you shared, you know, kind of like your feelings about when you were diagnosed and, um, you know, I'd love to know too, like, how did you go from, okay, we, we, you know, I'm very, I'm about to deliver baby with dwarfism. I know very little about, there's really not very much information out there to parents. And I know that the question is pretty broad, but I guess let's start to fill in the blanks and let's talk about um, Hudson, who you guys often refer to him as Huddy. Mm-hmm. And um, I, uh, um, you know, what were some of the challenges that you, you know, or what, you know, you said he had a little bit of the window, but was the newborn period relatively uneventful or I think from what I remember, it was very eventful for you guys. It was very eventful. Um, In fact, I would even say that the newborn period was traumatic. Um, We had um, an incident when he was five days old where he stopped breathing when I was feeding him. Um, wow, he was, it was five days old. Five days old. I was recovering from a C-section. You know, I was in a lot of pain. I was still kind of having hot flashes. 
And I looked down at him and I thought, does, does, do his lips look a little blue? And my husband came walking down the stairs and I asked him and I was like, you know, he feels a little like cold, but I didn't know if I was having a hot flash. Um, and, and Colin, my husband said, yeah, his lips do look blue. And then it was at that moment where his whole body started to turn blue. And, um, you know, I'm only describing this because I think it's important for other parents to know what signs to look out for, um, if something were to happen. Um, so that's when we started doing CPR and I was, Mm. you know, recovering from a C-section. I was on the ground doing CPR. It is amazing what you will do for your babies. Yeah. you know, in an emergency situation, you put all your pain aside, your adrenaline takes over and you yeah. will do what you can to help that baby. And, uh, we called 911. They were there incredibly quickly. I'm still, um, you know, we've started giving our first responders Christmas gifts because, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we owe everything to them. And, um, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, I, I say to parents now, literally the best gift you can give to your child is to get certified in CPR and to know how to do it beforehand. Um, And that means taking a class, um, doing it on the model babies so that you know what it feels like, you know how quickly to do the compressions and you know how to deliver the air to them. Because when that situation happens, you never think you're going to have to use it until you do. And thank goodness we knew what to do in that situation because, um, you know, we were told that if we hadn't known, then his outcome may have been very different. So, um, you know, it it was very scary, but he ended up making a full recovery and yeah, and he's okay. You know, and you bring up a good point because CPR on an infant, a newborn, or is very different than a child and extremely different than an adult. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. you know, you're talking about using your fingers, not the palm of your hand or your thumbs. Exactly. And it's much faster. Their heart rate is. So yes, I, I, again, I'll reiterate, you know, one of the best things you can do for your baby is get that CPR and it's not too late. Like if you are, if your baby's already born, you know, do it because um, it's, it's so important. So so what did they think? Did they think that had something to do like with his anatomy, with the reflux? Like where did, because typically, you know, we can see, you know, someone out there might be thinking, well, my child doesn't have dwarfism, so I might not need to do this. But in my world, we see these, what we call life-threatening events um, in babies because of reflux, because of aspiration. Um, maybe they're born with some, you know, anatomical thing like in their airway. And so that, uh, that apnea, it's not always, you know, more often than not, it's caused by something like obstructive versus something neurologic. So knowing that he could be, you know, either one, what did they say as far as like, you know, cause I know your mom wants answers. I, I think that's awesome. Yeah. You know, what, what did they suspect was the reason that that even happened? Yeah. So his formal diagnosis was that they thought it was a, um, a, um, oh gosh, what is that word? 
Um, so laryngospasm. So, so basically a, I'm trying to think of another way to describe it. So yeah. So the voice uh, box, yeah, just kind of like spasmed and closed off his airway. Yes, exactly. Okay. So a spasm that was caused by reflux. So okay. the food coming back up caused yeah. his airway to close. Um, now I, I think that is a very, very likely possibility, but I've always questioned if it may have partially been due to the way he was positioned on my chest after I fed him. So basically, um, you know, this is something that can happen in all babies and not just babies with dwarfism, although it is more likely to be a problem in babies with dwarfism. But if, if their head, um, you know, flexes forward toward their chest, it can cut off their airway and, Mm -hmm. or it can, um, cause it in babies with dwarfism, since they do have that narrowing of the skull, it can cause compression of the nerves and, those are nerves that are important for controlling breathing. Breathing. So that can cause their breathing to stop. Um, so, you know, I think it was, it, it may have been a number of things causing that incident, or it could have just been that his muscles weren't very strong and they just, you know, his um, airway closed because his yeah. muscles couldn't keep it open. Um, so they're floppy. Um, so, you know, I, I think that is all of these things occur in dwarfism. And although his formal diagnosis was that it was caused by reflux, I think there may have been some other factors related to his dwarfism that may have played a role as well. Well, I hope um, he hasn't done that since, but I know you've had challenges um, with his breathing and oxygen. And um, and so let's kind of carry on with kind of like his past history and kind of what what happened from there. And mm-hmm. I also want to add too that at some point you knew you were going back to work. And um yes. So but we'll get to that in a minute. So um you know what were some of the other challenges that uh that you faced? Yes. So I will say that basically my entire three month maternity leave was filled with doctor's appointments. Okay. <laughs> so it was a lot of appointments and tests. And um, we had a lot of procedures just to, you know, get everything checked out to look for all of those common medical challenges and dwarfism. Um, they were still trying to kind of get to the root of what caused his breathing problem. Um, sure. They had him go through a sleep study when he was one month old. And this is basically where he stayed the night at um, a hospital and they measured his breathing and his oxygen levels uh, while he slept. And they diagnosed him with severe sleep apnea. And okay. from there, he was sent to the main campus hospital and they kept him for I don't know, maybe four or five days. And they ran a bunch of different tests that could help them try to get down to the cause of that. And they they figured out that it was obstructive sleep apnea, which means it's caused by some sort of blockage of the upper airway. Um, You can also have cases in dwarfism where it's central sleep apnea that's caused by their brain. Um, But in Hudson, it's caused by his airway. And um, that's when they sent him home with oxygen therapy. So okay. basically he's on supplemental oxygen. He was on it all the time when he was younger. I want to say up until like he was six or seven months old, he had to have the oxygen tube on his face and be connected to the the um, tank or the machine at all times. 
uh, that was an interesting experience. I was just going to um, say, how was that for you? Yeah. So that actually, you know, I, I know I'm joking about it, but you know, it was, it was actually something that did affect my quality of life as a new mother, because, um, you know, you have no sense of normalcy when you've just had a baby and, you know, you're, if you choose to breastfeed, um, you know, that's a commitment in itself. And, and, you know, it's just a lot of, you know, sitting around the house, uh, doing, you know, taking care of your baby. That's, that's your, and, and you have a toddler too. And I had a I mean, let's not yes. forget about Stella. Yes. And you know, all those bodily changes and psychological changes that, you know, you go through after you've just had a child, um, you want to kind of get out of the house every now and then. And that was something I struggled with was every time I wanted to go somewhere, it was a big effort because I needed to make sure that the tank was charged. I needed to make sure that someone was able to sit in the back seat with Hudson to make sure he was still breathing, um, you know, checking his pulse ox level, which is the machine that measures his oxygen levels. Um, just, you know, lots of equipment that accompanied us both at home and just whenever we went anywhere. I mean, um, and that's was, on top of all the other stuff that, you know, you have to have with the, with a baby, you know, so this isn't, exactly. you know, I think everybody can resonate with getting out of the house means, you know, I know my daughter-in-law was like, if we come to visit, it means we really love you, you know, exactly. and now you're talking yes. about, this is an addition to, you know, all the yes. other you know, stuff. So, yeah. So if we were leaving to go to a doctor's appointment, it looks like we were going on a vacation for a week. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so, you know, but we figured it out and, um, we have a, a wonderful, um, stroller, the up a baby, um, Vista that has that, that part in the bottom where you can store things. And so we'd always put all of this stuff down there and surprisingly it fit everything. So, um, you know, it's just something that we adjusted to and it, it definitely was a challenge, but we got used to it. And, um, you know, it was just lots of doctor's appointments, lots of adjustments around the home. I did sleep in the family room with Hudson for about six or seven months after he was born. He slept in one of those pack and plays with his oxygen machine and, um, I slept on the couch with him and just to kind of, I, I didn't want to leave his side. I yes. felt nervous to, you know, the, the hospital had given us that pulse ox that measures his oxygen. Um, that was our safeguard to know if he stopped breathing and that didn't alert us on our phones or anything. So, um, and, and I didn't feel comfortable just trusting that I would hear it through a baby monitor or something. So I wanted to be within earshot of that machine at all times. And, you know, not to mention, I was just dealing with postpartum anxiety to begin with that, sure. you know, I, I did not want to leave his side. Um, so yeah, it, it was definitely, um, you know, not your typical newborn situation. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so then let's talk about, you know, how, Oh, you know, we know many times a parent has to, I mean, obviously bringing home any baby, one baby, the second baby, it's life changing. Okay. No, no doubt. And, um, but when you also, you know, have to plan for childcare, 
Tell me about your experience as just a constant advocate for him, because now, you know, you're just getting to know the best way to care for him, you know, how he sleeps, his oxygen, how you feed him, whether it's, you know, bottle breast and then starting supplemental foods, you know, when appropriate, like now all of a sudden you've got others there that, you know, how did that go? And I I know you and I had several texts in between and it's Mm -hmm. like, I think that if I recall, you were like, I don't, you know, I don't want to be overbearing, but at the same time, and you know, me, I'm always like, you know, just, I think as long as you, you go into it as a partner with them, Mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, someone who's, accusing or, you know, so realizing that these caretakers are part of the team, team Huddy, you know, exactly. I think, and, and so share your experience about, about that and just kind of, you know, some of the things that happened along the way. Yeah. So, um, I will say that I was, you know, that was one of the first things I thought when we got his diagnosis was, is he going to be able to go to a typical daycare? You know, is this going to affect my ability to go back to work and, you know, do my career, which I love. And, you know, that scared me. Um, So I got on the phone and called multiple doctors of his and asked him that question. I said, can he go to a typical daycare? Is this going to be okay? You know, now that he's got the supplemental oxygen, which is a big, you know, and these other requirements with keeping his back straight and a special high chair and, you know, keeping his head upright for 20, 30 minutes after he eats because of the reflux and uh, feeding him small quantities. And, um, you know, he can't go in baby slings or bouncers. Uh, these uh, are, which, you know, daycares utilize those things, you know, sure. when they're, because they can't hold them children. all day. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, so, so that was, I was very nervous that I wasn't going to be able to send them to daycare. And, um, fortunately everyone reassured me that yes, he can still go to a typical daycare. You just have to make sure that the daycare is prepared to learn and to work with you. And, um, we've had a really good experience with his daycare. You know, I went in and I wrote down all these instructions for, they were probably like, Oh my goodness, I have to read all this. (laughs) So, um, you know, but they, they, everyone got used to it. It was scary at first. I was terrified of sending him to be under someone else's care. Um, No matter how wonderful they are, I just, you know, that's, I was very, very protective of him um, with everything that had happened. And um, I went in, I showed them how to do everything. I took, I wrote notes down. I, um, you know, we had to fill out some formal paperwork for, you know, documentation. Um, And we actually ended up buying a second high chair to put at daycare so that he could use the special high chair to support his back. We bought another infant seat that he, that would work for supporting his back. Um, and we put, you know, a magazine behind his back to help keep it straight and supported. Um, so we provided these things. So not to mention, you know, the additional cost of having a child with dwarfism, you know, um, but it's, it's something that, you know, his needs are always changing and that's where the partnership comes in. The partnership between the parents and the care providers, because they inform me 
when he seems like he's wanting to do a new movement or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, his, his needs have changed. And I inform them when I know about changing needs that have been given to us from the doctors. So it's basically, you know, a back and forth that we're always working together for um, making sure that he has what he needs to stay safe and to help his growth and development. Um, And to make, you know, me feel comfortable as a mom sending him to someone else's care. Um, You know, it, it has been a little bit challenging because sometimes, you know, with daycare, they have, you know, floaters who, who floated yes. out. So he's got some different providers. So that gave me some uneasiness that he wasn't, you know, getting the care that he needed. But I was reassured and I saw that, you know, he is being taken care of. And, you know, there is, you know, not not every parent is that lucky, though, that, you know, you it is a constant advocacy journey that you have to be the the squeaky wheel. And, um, you know, I remember asking some parents for advice, um, some parents who had children's with other med- children with other medical conditions. Um, you know, how do you handle this? And the one parent said to me, she said, you're not always going to be the favorite at the daycare and at the okay. school. You're, you're not going to be the favorite parent. <laughs> and I was like, okay, all right, I, I can handle that. But, you know, sometimes you've got to just be loud and you've got to be the person who's going to say, hey, they need this. I know it's a pain. I know it's extra work. Yes. But this is important for their health and to keep them safe. So it absolutely needs to be done. There's no question about it. Um, so, you know, you just, you got to be the squeaky wheel and the advocate because your child doesn't have a voice yet. They, they can't right. speak for themselves and you are their voice. That's, that's your job as a parent. And, and it's evident that uh, it, it's definitely working for Huddy because I know that, um, you know, he's, he is such a happy guy. He's such he a happy is. baby. And, uh, and so, you know, I'm sure that's reassuring to you and to have that cooperation with, with them. And also, you know, thank you for that advice. Like, don't be afraid to be the squeaky wheel. I think it's all about the approach, right. And how you communicate and, you know, thinking before you speak, because it's so easy as mama bear, right. To run in there and be like, ah, you know, but absolutely. Okay. Let me just take a minute, you know, and, uh, take a deep breath, but don't be afraid. You know, you still, you still have to, you know, follow through with all of that because, uh, it's important. And I'm so glad you have someone, you know, that you've got a, a team of people there that, have been, you know, working with you and continue to, to work with you on that. Yeah. So tell me, you know, there's so many different, you know, we talked about the characteristics of Huddy's hypochondroplasia. I know there are similar conditions too, and it is a form of short stature. So you talked about the disproportionate, there are some um, cases where it's proportionate. And Mm -hmm. so what, what kind of, where's that line drawn, I should say, where someone is short stature with dwarfism versus, you know, short stature, because I, I, you know, you might be, someone might be out there thinking, well, I wonder if, my child or my relative or even myself was misdiagnosed. And uh, so if you don't mind kind of 
defining, you know, where do they typically draw the line in regards to that? Let's say in an, especially yeah. in, a, in a proportionate, you know, short stature. Oh gosh. In a proportionate situation. I, I think it would come down to, um, you know, medical testing that, you know, that, that is a, that can be tough. I'm sure because it's a bit of a blurred line because, you know, in the disproportionate situations, you can tell based on, um, you know, whether their arms and legs specifically are shorter. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, they've got bowed legs and, um, they've got these other medical complications like breathing problems and, um, you know, um, reflux and all these things that, you know, come with dwarfism that, you know, it can help guide, you know, whether to get the genetic testing. And that's what ultimately will give you the answer. Um, but, you know, it that can be tough, I think, for, um, you know, parents that it, it's just always important to get your child seen by the right people yes. so that you know that they are being properly assessed, they're getting the medical test that they need to help determine whether it's something like dwarfism or, or your everyday short stature. Yeah, exactly. Because getting that diagnosis and figuring out what is going on can determine what type of treatment and intervention that they could benefit from. Um, So that's why it's important that if you do have any type of concern that your child does have short stature, you know, it's, it's, you don't want to panic. Don't, you know, assume that your child has dwarfism, but you know, it's definitely important to get them evaluated by the right people. And I'm sure that was a challenge too. I mean, you, you know, you live in an area where there's a lot of really good medical care and, um, but it's also, you know, part of the challenge of being an advocate was seeking the right doctors and, you bring up such a good point and not just in seeing the specialist, but seeing your pediatrician regularly, mm-hmm. you know, cause I know in the beginning, you know, there's, even if you don't vaccinate, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, we're not here to talk about vaccines, <laughs> but sometimes people might be like, well, the only reason you go in and those in that first year is if you're doing vaccines, which of course I, I promote, you know, and encourage, but, um, you know, it's important to check that growth chart, to to check that trajectory and how it how it's going. And and, um, you know, is it are you falling off the curve or, you you know, in your height mm-hmm. or your weight? And so I think it's really important. And then saying, OK, I think it's time because genetic testing, too. I mean, I would say the majority of dwarfism is you know, it, you know, it is genetic. The majority Mm -hmm. is something that occurs spontaneously, but there are inherited forms. And again, we don't need to go into all that, but I think that um, you're right. Just seeking the right medical care. Now, we really want to bring attention to the fact that we want to reduce the stigma, right? Absolutely. And I'm sure, you know, when, you know, you're starting to share with family and friends and things like this, you know, what they, what they say and what they don't say is 
even what they don't say is just as important, right? Because, but mm-hmm. also what they say. So what are some, I'd love for you to share, because I know you did on your social media and um, I want to mention, I'll put a plug in for little Hudson. Um, he has his own Instagram account and I, I follow it. I know I've learned a lot and um, and I love just watching a day in the life of Huddy, you know, um, but it's at Hudson doing things. And at Huddy I, doing things. Oh, Huddy. Yes, that's right. Yeah, Huddy, Huddy doing Huddy. things. Yes, H-E-D-D-Y <laughs> doing things. And um, thanks for correcting me. But no I, one of your posts were was about like acceptable terms. So would you share that with everybody? Yeah, so um, that's something that honestly, a lot of people don't know is, you know, yes, how do I talk I about someone with dwarfism? Um, you know, how do they, what words do they like? Um, I will say that you can't go wrong with using words like person with short stature or okay. person with dwarfism or child with dwarfism. Um, a lot of people are okay with the term little person. Um, that okay. is an acceptable term. Um, in certain situations, it can be okay to use the term dwarf. Um, but that's one that is a little bit controversial in the community still, and it depends on how you use it. Um, so that's something that, you know, you want to make sure that you ask the person their preferences before you use, you know, any of these terms. Um, some terms to avoid are, um, you know, I, the M word. Um, yes. I'm sure everyone knows like what I'm talking about. Yes. Yeah. And um, that's one that in all situations is just not acceptable. Um, okay. It's it's offensive. You, you never use that. Um, and... Yeah, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, just asking a person what they what they want to be referred to as or what they want you to say about their child is is the best way to do it. Yes, because he's Hudson. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> exactly. You know what? And that thank you for reminding me. Honestly, the the best thing to do is just to use their name. Yes. There is really no reason to use any words that describe their height and their stature, unless it's relevant to the conversation. But most people with dwarfism, they just want you to call them their name. Yes. Yes. I love that. And you shared with me when we were talking before this, that there definitely was, you know, of course, everybody loves you and your family and wants to be supportive and, and so on. But there were some conversations that you kind of found awkward and difficult, correct? Yeah, so I I will mention that hypochondroplasia is a mild form of dwarfism. It's the you know the physical characteristics are typically less severe or maybe a little less noticeable than okay. you know other forms like achondroplasia. Um, you know the final targeted height could be you know in the mid four foot range to the very low five foot range. So it's you know it's something that. Um, you know, and as a baby, some of these characteristics aren't as obvious to other parents and or to just other people um, who, mm-hmm. who aren't aware. Um, they will become more obvious as his peers grow taller and he doesn't. But as of now, you know, it can be hard to tell that he has a form of dwarfism. So I have had some people say to me, you know, oh, he looks great. You can't even tell he has dwarfism or, oh, he he looks, you know, awesome. He, he, you, it, it's, 
it's not even clear that he has dwarfism, like things like that. Like, and, and how did that, that make you to feel? Me, it makes me feel kind of achy. Like it's yeah. kind of just like, you know, are you complimenting my child for not looking like he has dwarfism? Like it kind of just makes me feel like they think, you know, it's a good thing to not look like he has this condition. And I get that it's coming from a good place, but it also makes me feel that, you know, I think that we should recognize his differences and, you know, celebrate them. And, you know, he has short arms and short legs and, and a larger head and he is beautiful. And I, you know, he's, he's not going to look like every other kid in every way. And, and that's okay. And um, so, you know, I think that for me, if there's something to not say to a parent with hypochondroplasia, it's, I would say to, to compliment their child on not looking like they have dwarfism. And that I think we could say about any uh, genetic or medical condition um, in general, you know, like, oh, they don't even look like they have down or, you right. know, syndrome or something like that. It's, it is, uh, I, I can understand that. I appreciate you sharing that, you know, honestly, because it helps. I mean, this is all, you know, part of, part of it is helping not just families who are going through this, but others who don't know a lot of information and family and friends so that they realize that it's, it's all about acceptance and accepting everyone for who they are, you know, no matter if you're, you know, seven feet tall and uh, super skinny. I mean, even when in my practice, I I realized, you know, like I'd walk in the room and I'd be like, oh, you're so tall. And then I had to mm-hmm. realize to myself, maybe, maybe they don't like that I'm pointing it out. Maybe that's something right, you're right. about. You just never know. So I'll I'll just say, you know, it's been a, such an honor to watch you grow up, you know, and so it's really right. just about tweaking sometimes the things that we say, because you're right. It, it does exactly. come from you know, for the most part comes from a a good place. It's just that we need to, in general, in life, just celebrate, you know, how um, wonderfully and different we're all made. It would be boring if everyone looked the same, right? I completely agree. And you know what? The world is, is not always a nice place. And that actually was my biggest, that was the very first thought I had was when we, when we first got the diagnosis, I was thinking, is he going to be bullied? Are people going to be nice to him? And, you know, I personally accepted the diagnosis from day one and I was more worried about what other people were going to say to him and how they were going to treat him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's part of the reason I'm on this journey to educate people and to try to shatter this stigma because, you know, these children are so much more, these people are so much more than their physical characteristics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is just teaching kindness at home is so incredibly important. And, you know, parents, when they ask me, what can I do, you know, to, to help support Huddy, I tell them, I say, teach your child kindness and read them books that talk about inclusivity and acceptance and you know no matter what the situation is whether it's dwarfism or down syndrome or or any other you know conditions or just physical red hair like (laughs) red hair exactly you know just teaching kindness teaching them to use kind words teaching them to to choose 
the person to be on their team in sports that that might not be the one who's who's doing slam dunks um you know but but it's not always about winning the game it's about making that person feel included and being kind and you know that's what i tell people is the biggest thing that they can do to support huddy and you know being his parent has really changed my outlook on how i raise my children to to treat other kids you know mm-hmm. my my toddler she'll say things like oh we we aren't friends with the people who don't go to daycare you know she doesn't know she she's just saying you know and I say no we're friends with all types of people we're we're friends with you know everyone and I probably would have said that anyway but but my point is is that you know it's really made me more in tune to the fact that kindness is something that really needs to be taught in the everyday interactions with our children and, Absolutely. you know, it's, it's definitely, I think it's, it's made me a better person. It's made me a better parent. It's also made me more in tune to realizing that the world isn't built for people in certain situations or for people of short stature. Like I went to the movie theater with my daughter the other week and I realized, wow, these sinks are pretty high. There's no there's no step stools. Like not only does that affect people of short stature, but it also affects children. And, yes. you know, so now I, of course, it, when I have some spare time at some point, I'm going to go on a side quest and try to get some step stools into some local places, but that's a di- story for a different day. But, um, you know, it, it's made me it's realize a good idea. that. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> but it's, it's, you know, made me realize that there are so many challenges that certain people face in their day-to-day lives and they just keep such a positive attitude and you know it, it's it, your outlook and your attitude is everything and you know yes. you just gotta make make accommodations and figure out how to make things work for you and 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 you you move forward well I have I mean I am so appreciative of having this discussion I mean I know I've learned a lot and as a pediatrician, as a friend, as uh, just a person in general. And I just want to, you know, as we wrap up here, is there any final thoughts? I mean, what what you just shared was, you know, it was amazing. Um, but any any final thoughts, any last take home uh, points you just want to let those that are listening know? Yeah. So I think, you know, this is, this is a super important question. You know, when, when I first learned about Huddy's diagnosis, I felt very scared and uncertain and, you know, fearful and worried about the future. And, you know, I also kind of felt like, wow, this isn't how I pictured my child would be, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, so it was just different. Um, And, you know, it was, I was scared. I was anxious. I was, you know, all of the above. But now that I've seen how he's grown up and he's only a year and a half, so we've got a lot of growing up to do still, but, um, you know, already I'm just seeing that he's such a happy, happy, smiley kid. And honestly, I cannot imagine my life without him. He's mm-hmm. literally so perfect to me that I just, you know, I, all of my fears that I originally had, I wish I could go back and tell that Alex from a year and a half ago or a little over that, that, that I had no reason to be worried 
it was going to be okay. As long as I knew CPR, then I had no reason to be worried. <laughs> but, you know, it's just, that is something that, you know, I'm not just saying that. Literally, if any parent, you know, if your child is diagnosed with a condition, whether it's dwarfism or something else, it's going to be okay. You'll, you'll make it through. And, you know, you'll become a stronger and more grateful version of yourself, you know, and you might not even realize that happening until after the fact, but, you know, it's definitely been a positive in my life. And I can't believe I'm saying that a medical condition would be a positive thing, but, you know, I wish he didn't have to deal with some of the discomforts and some of the challenges associated with it. But I think that really we were put together for a reason that, you know, I'm able to provide the advocacy and the help and the voice and the knowledge to help him grow up in a supportive environment. And, you know, I think there's a reason that he was put into my life and I've gone all in. I'm, I'm all in on, you know, being his guide and his mother and his, his person. And, um, you know, I really think that it has given my life so much more purpose and meaning than I felt before. Um, and so if I were to tell someone who's going through the same thing, I would tell you, you know, don't worry. This is, there are a lot of silver linings with this and you're going to meet people that you wouldn't have otherwise met. You're going to learn things you're going to, you know, it's just, it's really wonderful. So, yeah. Well, I am really looking forward to watching him grow up and you grow, you know, uh, and have grown, you know, since, you know, having, you know, Huddy. And uh, I can't thank you enough for joining me. And I just want to remind everybody, you know, that, uh, that, yeah, she's right. It's going to be okay. You get the right people. You work together with your own, you know, partner and your family and um, just be that constant advocate and don't be afraid, you know, to use your voice. And sometimes you have to speak louder than others. But I want to thank you again. And I want to thank everybody for listening. And let's grow up together. Thanks for listening to another episode of Growing Up with Dr. Sarah. If you enjoyed this episode and think the information shared here today could benefit someone else, take a screenshot of the episode and post to your Instagram story. Make sure you tag us at Growing Up With Dr. Sarah so we can spread the word about the show and continue to grow in our mission to support as many parents and families as possible. Hey, if you're interested in being a guest on the show or would like to suggest a topic, please visit www dot growing up with dr sarah dot com slash contact thanks again for spending time with us today stay tuned for a brand new episode next week as we continue to grow up together <laughs>